Morning. How are we doing then? All right. We're in a good mood today, I can tell. I, to, I was going to say, actually, I'm, I am delighted to be here. Apparently that's not good enough. You have to be deliciously delighted to be here. <laughs> a certain community on the front says, I've got to say that. We, we, we learned that from a very great preacher away on our uh, Vineyard Leaders Gathering, so that's really good. So we are looking at Galatians 2 today. Um, first things first, who watched the uh, coronation yesterday? Did you see that? I don't know what you thought of it. I know there's a bit of a generational divide. Some would say, you know, if you're over 30, you're kind of really into it, under 30, not so sure. Um, but I, on the whole, I thought it was really good in the sense of, once again, at a time of national gathering, national celebration, what did we do? Millions of us, we went to church. We worshiped together in church, which is a good thing, right? Because particularly when people say, you know, we're not necessarily a Christian nation now. So that was a good thing. And um, while we were uh, worshiping away and, and enjoying it, um, I don't know if you noticed the one particular part of the ceremony that I found really interesting, which was this business where the sovereign, and this is cast in Parliament from a law back in 1688, would you believe, has to make a number of solemn oaths. Did you see that bit? Where Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, basically says, uh, will you do this? And he has to say, yes, I will. And at the end of it, so solemn, he has to sign a contract to say, say he said it. You saw him sign... Uh, probably in the ceremony if you're watching it. And I, I was fascinated, when all this came out before and I was prepping for this morning, I was fascinated by the one particular line that he says, and I, I took it from the order of service that came out yesterday, and, and Justin Welby says this, Will you to the utmost of your power maintain in the United Kingdom the Protestant Reformed religion established by law? And then Charles says, All this I promise to do, he says. So it got me thinking, who's in the Protestant Reformed religion? Well, you lot are, actually. <laughs> you're, you're a pro- Protestant reformist. And it goes back, so it's basically anybody's a Christian that's not part of the Catholic Church. That's kind of the gist of it. And I started looking it up, and it goes back to the Reformation in the 1500s to a guy uh, called Martin Luther. Now, he was a Roman Catholic priest in the, church, the Catholic Church at the time, a teacher in the church, And basically, he started to disagree with some of the theology of the Catholic Church. And he particularly fell out over something called the indulgent system, I kid you not, which in part allowed people to purchase a certificate of pardon for their sins. And that's what used to happen. And Luther argues strongly against this, saying that basically forgiveness comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And he taught that, yeah, that was part of his, he published a document called the 95 Theses, uh, which were a number of discussion points of contradicting the doc- doctrine of the church at the time. And Luther said that salvation and eternal life are not earned by good deeds, but they are received as a free gift of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the modern gospel that we would now preach. But here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. This is why I went down this route. What do you think inspired him to, uh, to, to make this controversial stand? Well, it was the book of Galatians. It was the book of Galatians. Galatians was his favorite book. In fact, I don't know if we've got the quote up on the screen. He says, the epistle to the Galatians, we haven't got it on the screen. Uh, the epistle, epistle to the Galatians is my own epistle. I have betrothed myself to it. It is my Katie. 
That was the name of his wife. I'm not sure Janita would be too pleased if I named a book of the Bible after her, but it's, it's what he did anyway. I'm sure he had fun when he got home after he'd said that. Um, but it's all about grace. There you go. There's the quote. There's a lovely picture of Martin Luther. It's all about grace. And this series we are, we are focusing on over these next couple of months, we're at week three of ten of a ten-part series, is called It's All About Grace, because we, we believe that's what the gospel is. It's all about grace. It's nothing about what we've done. It's about everything that he has done. And uh, if you're new with us and you want to catch up, if you've missed a couple, all the, the talks are available on our, our YouTube channel. If you use the hashtag Coastline Vineyard, you'll find all the talks there going back lots and lots of years, uh, particularly this series. And we're running this series through to pretty much the end of July. And you'll hear people say from this platform, it's all about grace. It is all about grace. That's the series, right? And we'll say things like, we preach a gospel of grace. Uh, we'll say that grace abounds. We'll say we have an amazing grace. We'll even sing about it, won't we? But what is grace? Do we understand what grace really is? What is grace? Grace is the undeserved, unmerited favor of God. Grace is getting from God what we don't deserve rather than what we do deserve. Grace is G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace leaves the 99 safe in the pen and goes after you when you're the lost sheep that's run away and it rescues you and brings you home. Grace is the father that stands at the gate and says, my son, you've come home. Even though you squandered the wealth of the house, you're welcome back. Grace made us alive in Christ when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. And grace said to you that while you were still a sinner, while you were at the furthest point of your rebellion, Christ died for you and brought you home. Grace is the practical outworking of God's amazing love. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. And it's the only way by which we're saved. It's the only way by which we're saved. For by grace you have been saved, said Ephesians 2. Through faith, and it's not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Grace is at the very centre of the gospel message, the good news that we declare. It's the very foundation on which we build our house. It's the rock that we build our house upon. We deny grace, we deny everything of the gospel. We forget grace and our peril. And the book of Galatians is all about a defense of the gospel of grace. Paul, in this book, more than any other book, vehemently opposes some Judaizers, they call them, some false teachers who've come in amongst the people and said, it's not really all about the cross. It's all about what you can do. It's all about the traditions that you follow. It's all about keeping the old Jewish law. It's really not just about the cross and not about salvation. And Paul writes the letter to Galatians to essentially oppose that point of view, oppose that opinion. If I had to summarize what Paul was saying in the letter, it was basically this. You muppets, you've forgotten what the gospel is all about. 
you idiots, you crazy Galatians. In fact, he says it. If you look in Galatians 3, he says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I love the message, actually. You, you're crazy Galatians. Did someone put a spell on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? And he basically says, I'm absolutely furious with you. That having started off with the gospel of grace, now you seem to be replacing it with some other hybrid faith that's a combo of works and grace. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel we believe in here. That's not the gospel on which we stand here. It's all about grace. So let's have a look, shall we, at Galatians chapter 2. That's what we're looking at this morning. Uh, If you've got a Bible, have a look, Galatians 2. It's a big chapter, so we are going to try and read it, but I haven't got time to go through all of it this morning. But let's see what we can do to read God's Word, and hopefully by the Holy Spirit, it'll speak to us anyway. So that'll be great, through His Word. So if you don't have a Bible, have a look in the seat in front of you. You might well find there's a spare one there, so uh, take that away with our blessing and our encouragement. But let's look at Galatians 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation, and meeting me privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Bear that verse in mind. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedoms we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me, God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been trusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Paul been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I've been eager to do all along. We thank God for his word. So what's going on here? Well, just kind of the the lynch verse really is that verse 5. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of gospel might be preserved for you. So the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And what we've got here is joining a a conversation that Paul, in one sense, is having with the Galatians, you know, in his letter from chapter 1, where he talks about a trip where he goes up to Jerusalem just to double-check that what he was preaching was right. It says after 14 years, after a period of time, this was some years ago, by the way, uh, I went up to Jerusalem to meet the apostles just to check that I was on the right track. And 
he basically goes to meet those who are the pillars of the church, James, Peter, and John. And they, the ultimate thing of that is they say, Paul, you're doing a great job. You know, you go to the Gentiles, you've clearly got a mission for the Gentiles. We've got a mission to the Jews. Go with our blessing, give them the right hand of fellowship. Now, the whole reason he's mentioning this is because these critics, these false teachers have come into the church and they've started to say, what Paul's preaching isn't quite correct. You know, you need to follow the old Jewish traditions, the old Jewish laws. There's a mixture of grace, the grace of the cross, with the old traditions. And Paul's line, really, is that they were seeking to enslave the church. So he said, we didn't give in to them for a moment. Why? Because we wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel. And what are the basic truths of the gospel? There's two fundamental truths we should have when we're reading this passage. Number one, that we're all sinners, that we've fallen short of God's perfect standard, and we can't stand before a holy God and our own merits. Billy Graham used to call that an offensive truth of the gospel. We don't like to be told that we've got it wrong. But the Bible says that, that we're sinners and fall short of God's standard, and that we cannot stand before a perfect and holy God in our own merits. That's number one. Number two is, the only way that my relationship with God can be restored is not through following a bunch of Jewish tradition, but through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross on my behalf. That's truth number two. And what happens here in Galatia is those false teachers came and said, those, those really aren't the truths of the gospel. That's not really how it should be. That's not how uh, the gospel really works. They, Paul calls them Judaizers. And he says, look, this is nothing new. I've had these guys in my ministry for years. I've had it previously in other places, other gospels or other letters, rather. Um, you read those, and the same kind of thing is going on. And Paul says, we thought this was a hill worth dying on. This is a, a hill worth defending. This is the truth of the gospel that we should defend. We are prepared to stand up for the truth of the gospel, to, to uh, preserve, it might say in your version, the truth of the gospel. And Paul says it's really important for us to do that because we want the gospel to continue without interruption, without of any kind of, of, of infiltration or breaking down of the truth of the gospel. We want that to be preserved amongst you. So why is it so important that Paul preserved the truth of the gospel? And why is it important that we should preserve the truth of the gospel? Well, the first very obvious point is we don't want to miss out on the promise of the gospel. We don't want to miss out on the promise of the gospel. We don't want to be following the wrong path or running the wrong race. That's kind of what Paul did, wasn't it? He said, look, I want to check with you, when he went up to Jerusalem, I want to check with you that I'm not running or have not been running my race in vain. You see, I have a theory that everybody's got a philosophy about life, whether you call yourself a person of faith or not this morning, right? Maybe you're watching online, maybe you're not sure about this whole church thing, so that's why you're watching online. But you've all got a philosophy, right? You've all got a philosophy. You've all got a belief about life, right? But how tragic would it be if you got to the end of time and you faced a holy God and God says, no, sorry, you ran your race in vain. That, that isn't the gospel. That isn't the truth of what the Bible is all about, what faith is all about. 
So it's important that we as a church defend the truth of the gospel because we don't want anybody to miss out on, on the promise of the gospel, the, the, the riches of the gospel, the reward of the gospel. We want to stand on the truth of the gospel and make sure that nobody misses out. So that's number one. Number two, why is it important to uh, preserve the truth of the gospel? Because we need to remember the gospel is for everybody. It's for everyone. What were these guys doing, these Judaizers doing, saying, well, basically, there's Jews and there's Gentiles, and frankly, the Jews are the better ones. They're doing a great job. You know, that's kind of where the argument was going. You know, you Gentiles, if you want to, be, want to be really, really saved, you've got to become like Jews. You've got to do the things that the Jewish uh, traditions and faith has kind of said, and that if you really want to get saved, that's what you kind of want to do. And I have to say, some, some churches, bless them, you know, we, we kind of add things to, to the gospel. We kind of say, well, if you really want to be a proper Christian... You've got to do this. Or if you really want to be a proper Christian, you've got to do that. Or if you, yeah, if you call yourself a Christian, you really shouldn't be doing that. We almost say to people, you know, sometimes there's a danger with this, right? If, if you want to come to God, that's great, but, you know, clean your act up first. You know, come in cleaned up a little bit. We don't want anybody coming in, you know, too, too dirty. That's not the gospel, is it? While I was still a sinner, while I was still going the wrong way, while I was running off into the night, the shepherd came and sought me and found me and brought me home. That's the truth of the gospel. We have a sign outside, you've probably seen it, church for everyone. That's what we believe in, right? This is the church for everyone. Nobody's excluded. Everybody gets to play, we say. There's no hierarchy here in one sense. You know, we say everybody's all in. You can be you know, fully in if you come to Christ and if you come and return back into the fold like that lost sheep. This is a gospel for everyone. All right, let's read that second part then. Uh, have a look with me from verse 11. And uh, we'll just read the, the second part of the chapter. And this is about an argument that Paul and Peter have, which is quite interesting. But here we go. Uh, when Peter, I'll call him, it says Cephas in mine, but I'll call him Peter. When Peter came to, uh, to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those belonging to the circumcision group, that Judaizers group that we talked about. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, even my mate Barnabas, was led astray. And when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, there we go, that phrase again, I said to Peter in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then, when you, that, how is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ, just that, sorry, our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. 
But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we find we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, does that make Christ promote sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuilt what I destroyed, then really I would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I die to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I've lived by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. Amen. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could become gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Amen. So what's going on here? Well, perhaps let's just underline one little thing I probably didn't notice, because sometimes you can read these passages and you dip in and out of the verses a bit. But the whole of that section is a conversation that Peter and Paul were having. So it started off with a bit of an argument with Paul criticizing Peter for acting one way with the Gentiles and then acting another way when his Jewish mates turned up from Jerusalem, these Judaizer group. And so Paul and Peter fell out over that point. You know, Paul says he, he picked them up on it. But what we also then see, if you look at the quotes in your Bible, because you can see it's a conversation that kind of plays out, that they agreed on much, much more, right? In fact, if you look at verse 15 there, you could translate it like this. Peter and I agree that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Christ. So we, that's Peter and I, have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because we recognize that works of the law, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And it backs up Paul's whole argument here. Look, Peter and I agreed on this thing, that by following the law, no one is going to be justified. But our faith comes in Jesus Christ, in grace alone, in grace alone. And Peter and Paul agreed as pillars of the church, you could argue, that, that the way to salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. Back to that Martin Luther kind of position they took up all those hundreds of years ago. And Paul finishes the chapter with that one wonderful declaration of his own personal faith, doesn't he? Verse 20 there, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Who can agree with that? Amen. Amen. Great, so many of you. That's his simple summary here. You know, I've died to myself. I've died to the law. I've died to my old way of life. But I now live for Christ. And it's in him that I am set free. You know, we will never be right on our own efforts. We will never, ever make the grade by our own efforts. We can only be made right through faith in Christ. It's all about grace. It's all about grace. The gospel is a gospel of grace. It's God's free gift to every one of us. Back in the day, uh, we used to go to Spring Harvest, and there was a great guy called Jim Smith who was a great seminar speaker. 
And he used to say, he said, um, when I go and bang on the doors and meet a fella, he said, usually fellas, he said, I, I have to say to them, it's free. And they don't get it. So he said, I feel like saying, it's free, 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 it's free. Because after the 10th time, they're starting to get that it's free. But the gospel is about grace. And it's free, everyone. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's free. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And sometimes I think, just like those Galatians, we don't get it. We don't get it, what the gospel really is. That it's nothing about what we've done. It's everything about what he has done. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. But when you accept it, you can be free. Where are you this morning? Are you free? Do you feel free? Paul goes on, we'll go on to say at the end of the book, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Don't be caught and burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So he's referring back to these guys who are infiltrating their ranks again. And he says, look, it's for freedom that you're free. You, my brothers, were called to be free, he said in Galatians 5. And he also says in Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Max Lucado says this, God answered the mess of this life with one word, grace. You are free. And when Christ was on the cross, dying on the cross, just at the very end of his life, he uttered out three words. It is finished. And what was he saying? I'm done. I've finished here. I'm, I'm done for. No, 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 no. The work of salvation is complete. It is finished it is finished the work of salvation is complete and if you're sitting there saying I'm not sure Christ has forgiven me it is finished the work of salvation is complete it's over it's finished it's for freedom Christ has set us free do you feel free today it's for freedom Christ has set us free. Don't let's get caught up in a yoke of slavery. Let's not get caught in it. Let's stand. Let's stand.